So what does a world without the kingdom of God actually look like? Now, it's a scary thought, but Jesus felt the need to address this very topic on his way to his execution. And I like to think that if he thought it was important, then it has to be important to us. So let's talk about it. Today we're going to be starting at Luke chapter 23 from verse 27. This is what it says. A large number of people followed him, that's Jesus, including women who mourn and wail for him. So let me set up the scene here. Jesus is on his way to his execution. And the reason why there is a crowd of women wailing for Jesus is because, well, there's never been a public figure who stood up for the worth of women like he did. So it makes complete sense why they are so sad when they knew that Jesus was going to be led to his death. Then Jesus turned and said to them, daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me. Weep for yourselves and for your children. Now, this is a very strange line. So why would he say this? Next verse. For the time will come when you will say, blessed are the childless women, the womb that never bore, and the breasts that never nursed. Now, if this sounds weird to you, it's supposed to sound weird because this is completely backwards in that culture back then. You see, in those days, it was good to have children. As a matter of fact, women who couldn't have children were considered to be cursed by God. Now, we know that's not true, but that's just how they perceived it back then. Look, right before your eyes, women, a world is being created out of pure hatred. It's a world where women will continue to be treated less than human and a world where children will continue to suffer. And that's what a world without the kingdom of God will look like. And then he says this, then they will say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us. See here, Jesus is quoting an Old Testament prophet, uh, the book of Hosea. You see in the book that he's referencing, basically it says, you know, a world that these people are creating is so bad and horrific, people will beg the earth to open up and swallow them up because a godless world is so painful to live in. So Jesus is quoting Hosea here saying, hey, one of our ancient prophets warned us about something like this happening and it's about to come true. And then Jesus says something completely cryptic. He says, for if people do these things when the tree is green, what will happen when it is dry? So let's dissect that a little bit so we all understand what Jesus is trying to say to the women here. He's saying, I am the green tree. I'm filled with life and that's why I'm the tree that is blossoming. And I came on a mission for peace, to give life. And this is how they treat me. The person who's trying to bring shalom, this, this heaven on earth, and this is how they treat me. I'm the one that's trying to help them and they're trying to kick me out. I'm trying to heal people and they're trying to push me out. I'm trying to bring the good news of reconciliation and nonviolence and they're saying, get out of here, Jesus. We don't want you here. So if this is how they're going to treat the Son of God, just imagine how they will treat other people. And by other people, he's referring to women and children. So this is what a godless world will look like. Now, if that sounds like Jesus is giving up, throwing in the towel, it's not what he's doing here. For us to wrap our minds around that, there's a little bit of context that we need to know. Now, for those of you who've been a part of church for a while, you probably know that God had many enemies in the Bible. But one of the primary enemies that's depicted in the scriptures is, is a spiritual being called Hasatan in the Hebrew or the Satan in English. In Hebrew, it literally means the accuser. Now, the Satan, his role was always pointing out flaws so that, that one day God would give in and say, you know what, the Satan, you're right. Humanity is beyond saving. 
Let's get rid of them. But God is depicted in the scriptures as the one who was always looking for excuses to preserve humanity. So throughout the Old Testament, we see images of someone or something standing in between destruction and life. So you can just imagine when Satan says, look at that, that's a reason why humanity shouldn't exist anymore. God looks around and says, no, 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 they're worth saving because, and you fill in the blank. And that blank is called the gap. So here's an example. In Genesis chapter 6, there's a story called the Noah's Flood. Now, outside of its context, you would think, oh, God just decided to flood the earth on a whim. He got sick of humanity, he decided to destroy it. But if you read the story from Genesis 1, it tells a completely different story. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, when God was creating the world, He wasn't just speaking things into being. When it came to the part where God was creating the sky and the waters, it depicts God holding back the water in an in a upper compartment of the earth and holding the waters beneath in the lower compartment of the earth. You see, it's in that context that humanity says, we don't want God here anymore. So God said, okay, and He removed His hands from the waters above and the waters below, and thus the flood happened. God's hands stood between destruction and life. And those hands were removed when humanity demanded God to step aside. Or here's another example. In the Jonah and the Big Fish story, we see God giving warning against Nineveh, uh, the capital of the bully empire called the Assyrians. God basically begs Jonah and says, look, Nineveh's going to be destroyed in 40 days. Go over there and change them a little bit. Just give them a reason why they shouldn't be destroyed. Again, God is looking for the smallest excuse to keep humanity alive. There's so many stories like that in the Bible, and all these stories starts to come together and click together in Ezekiel chapter 22, verse 30. It says, I look for someone among them who would build up the wall and stand before me in the gap on behalf of the land so I would not have to destroy it, but I found no one. So I pour out my wrath on them and consume them with my fiery anger, bringing down on their own heads all they have done, declares the sovereign Lord. He's basically saying, Israel has become such a corrupt society. I was looking for any excuse for somebody to stand before me and say, here's a reason why you shouldn't destroy us, but I couldn't find anybody. Oh, while we're on topic, here's a little side note about this thing called the wrath of God. In ancient Israel, the wrath of God was basically a sped up version of the doom that humanity was bringing upon itself. You see, because the world and sometimes Christians often paint God as someone who, who wants to punish people for doing some wrong things. But the judgment that is painted for us in the Bible is actually God handing people over to their vices. You see, God doesn't need to destroy the world because people, humans, we do just fine destroying it on our own. And God is asking anybody, anything, to make a case to Him that His people and this world are worth saving. And here in Ezekiel 22, it says no one could make that case to him. All right, now fast forward a few hundred years to the passage in Luke. The religious rulers, the crowds, the, the Romans, they're all treating God as a piece of junk. They're trying to push him aside so that they could get on with their own things. And God is looking upon the world thinking, why shouldn't I just give up on you guys? And then Jesus enters and he raises his hand and says, I volunteer to stand in that gap. I am here to save humanity. You could just imagine Jesus looking at these women saying, look, when I'm present, women like you are treated as human beings. People who are marginalized are recognized. People who were given the scarlet letter are given a second chance. But in the same breath, he's explained to these women, but as you can see, your religious rulers are pushing God out of the picture. And the future that, that they're creating for humanity is something that no one should ever need to experience. This is why blessed are the childless women. 
In other words, this is hell on earth. But praise God, hallelujah, because that's not where the story ends. What does Jesus do at this point when he sees darkness overwhelming the world? Let's take at verse 32. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Now, what just happened here is significant. While this hell is unfolding in his midst, Jesus shines a bright light. All right, so let's put everything in perspective here. Jesus was wrongfully accused. He was about to suffer one of the most inhumane executions invented by humanity. And everything he fought for is being undone moments before his death. And with all this darkness surrounding him, it's easy to contribute to the darkness by cursing those around you. You know, cursing God, wishing ill upon somebody else. If any one of us was on that cross, I'm certain that we'd be filled with hate. But what does Jesus do here? He forgives them. He decided to shine a light in the midst of the darkness. In other words, he's saying the world that he just described to the women doesn't have to be our future. I mean, he could have easily poured out darkness in the midst of darkness, but he shined light. Jesus decided to cut through that darkness with a simple act of forgiveness. So what does this mean for us? Well, we've all been in a place where we felt like the darkness was overwhelming us, right? Perhaps you felt like your small act of love in the darkness had little to no effect for a brighter future. Maybe you are in darkness right now and, and you're trying to do this little act of love and you're starting to doubt. You're like, man, I don't know if my little act of love is going to make any dent in this dark world. But in this scene, something as basic as forgiving others who have wronged you, even though they haven't asked for forgiveness in the first place, is making a huge difference. Jesus is teaching us with his final breath that we can be a force for God's kingdom by continually welcoming God into our lives, our choices, our communities, trusting that God will use that small act of love we do each day to triumph over the hell we created for ourselves. So for those of you who are probably right now in a place of darkness and you feel like your little act of kindness and love isn't making a dent in the world around you, he's inviting you to trust him. He has the ability to take that small light and pass it on to other people and make the world a brighter place. So church, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May he make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you as he turns his face towards you and gives you peace. And may we all experience heaven together. God bless.